coaching can help you gain deeper understanding of challenges that may be holding you back. You may not realize that there are others who may be successful and operating successful businesses who share some of the same challenges that you are facing. Welcome to Coaching for Real with Ronald Graves. Our program will look into the individuals and their challenges and show how the coaching process may be what they need to find the root causes of these challenges within themselves and learn to work through these challenges in order to find success. Now, here's your host, Ronald Graves. Hello. Welcome to Coaching for Real, brought to you by Poema Leadership Institute, a show that brings you real people, real challenges, and real breakthrough. Again, I'm your host, Ronald Graves, and this show is about you. Coaching for Real is on the Voice America Business Channel to help you discover your masterpiece and live into your greatness. Now, if your business is on the Internet, whether it's just a simple web page or you conduct online transactions, you want to grab a pen and notepad because today's special guest is an Internet business lawyer who has plenty of real-world examples and tips that you can immediately apply to your business. I'll introduce him in just a minute, but first, since this show is called Coaching for Real, let's take a look at the word coach for just a minute. The word coach is used to describe a number of different people. There are sports coaches, life coaches, business coaches, performance coaches, executive coaches, and many more. Why do these people call what they do coaching instead of, say, teaching or training or leading or consulting or even mentoring. What do these people all have in common? You see, we've spent most of our lives learning from others through different mediums, such as books, classrooms, computers, radio, television, the internet, face-to-face conversations. And those people fill the role of teacher, author, trainer, manager, leader, consultant, mentor, and so on. By the time we leave formal education, where we've been subjected to information coming at us from all directions so we can memorize it, we're conditioned to look outside of ourselves for answers. And that's okay, because every one of us should be learning and growing every day, and there's an unlimited amount of knowledge to be found all around us. Today's show is a great example of this, because you need to be aware of the legal issues associated with conducting business on the internet. However, For those non-legal challenges you're currently facing in your life and in your business, there's one source of answers, other than God, that is far superior to what can be found in the world of knowledge. And that source is you. Let me explain. First and foremost, it's important to understand that you were created to be great. There is a masterpiece, a poema, within your DNA that is just waiting to be discovered. Your potential is infinite, but you will never find it by looking outside of yourself. No one can give you more potential because it's within you. You see, potential is an inside-out job. I must tap into it because it's what's on the inside that eventually shows up on the outside. And that is precisely why coaches are so important. Unlike teachers, consultants, managers, and mentors, who can be valuable, including today's special guest, a coach enables you to develop a greater sense of self-awareness. A coach is able to ask you those searching questions that you are unable to ask yourself, allowing you to see your challenges from an entirely new perspective and then draw upon your internal greatness to reach your potential. You see, coaches do not bring you the answers because they know that the best answers don't come from them or from the world around you, they lie within you. Now today's show is unique because while the premise of Coaching for Real is about discovering answers from within your internal greatness, we also need to tap into the world of knowledge outside of us, especially when it comes to protecting ourselves and our businesses from legal issues. Our special guest today is Richard Chapo, a well-known internet business lawyer. Richard's philosophy is to proactively position his clients to minimize their potential exposure to lawsuits. To this end, he provides advice to clients as large as multinational corporations and as small as hobby bloggers, with an eye towards eliminating potential problem areas before lawsuits are filed. Richard is versed in a variety of internet laws, including 
DMCA, Communications Decency Act, and the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, as well as FCC compliance guidelines, state privacy mandates, and recurring billing laws. So, Richard, welcome to Coaching for Real. Thank you for having me on. Welcome. How are you today? Doing well, doing well. Uh, trying to get through the day. You know, some some mornings are a little more busy than others, but uh, it's been a good day and looking forward to the week. Thank you so much for being on our show. Richard, if you can, take us back as far as you would like. And talk about the beginning of your journey and bring us up to what you would consider to be your first big milestone. Oh, wow, that's a good question. Um, I would think the beginning of my journey would probably, uh, hmm, probably begin you know after college. I went to uh, the University of California in Irvine, which is sort of in the southern Los Angeles area, and I uh, was really looking around for different things to do, trying to get a grasp of you know what interested me. Uh, you know, when you're trying, like most people, when you're trying to pick a career at a relatively young age. And ended up in law school um, for the ironic reason that I thought international law would be very interesting because you'd not only get to travel quite a bit, but you would be looking at new uh, legal issues. Um, since then, obviously, the Internet came around and <laughs> that kind of put a gabosh on the international travel aspect of it since, obviously, communication is so much easier now. Um, and you know, started practicing uh, in 1992, led up to about 1999, took a year off sabbatical uh, in Russia, of all places. And then probably the biggest milestone, the first big milestone was you know, opening my own law practice when I came back in uh, 2000, uh, which was, you know, a transition from just, you know, working with clients to actually taking on the overall business administration and everything that comes with that. True. So, so you said you took a sabbatical. Can you walk, you know, can you kind of give us the thought process that, that, that led you to do that? Um, sir, in the legal profession, as most people know, uh, when you work with a uh, firm, which I was at that time, uh, you're expected to produce a certain amount of billable hours. Uh, the idea of working 40 hours a week is somewhat laughable. Um, <laughs> you know, you're expected to put in 60 to 70 hours, something of that sort. And uh, like many other people, uh, you know, I wasn't particularly special. I burned out pretty badly uh, so that by the end of 1999, I was sure that I wanted to do anything but work um, either in law or in a large law firm. And so at that point, I was looking for something completely different um, and actually ran across uh, this group that was working with a um, community in Siberia, of all places, uh, with mm-hmm. a, a university there. Um, and they were you know, teaching everything from business law to uh, just even basic English. Um, but at that time... And in that world, um, you know, we still weren't that far away from the Soviet Union collapsing. It had been 10 years, but uh, Russia is so large uh, that in that part of the area, a lot of the benefits of of giving up communism hadn't really reached that area. And so you were seeing a lot of um, opportunities to um, help people, and they were trying to figure out, you know, what systems they were going to use, those kinds of things. Um, And I really enjoyed the process, to be quite honest. It was... um, interesting and a bit different from the usual legal practice because I'd been practicing litigation, which really involves tearing down things, even if you're defending a company, defending you know an individual. Um, it's a, it can be a nasty affair, uh, whereas versus teaching was a very positive affair. Um, you know, you're really helping people and explaining things and coming up with solutions to interesting issues. So, um, so for me, when I came back, even though I'd previously been really burned out on the law, the idea of forming a practice where I actually help people um, became very attractive, and I had a friend who had uh, become CEO of an internet company, um, which sounds glamorous now, but back in 2000, you know, most of us were still on dial-up. Um, and he was looking for a counsel, and uh, he asked me, you know, to take it on, even though I knew nothing about the field. <laughs> and uh, that's how I got into it. And I enjoy it because I do help people. Um, you know, I usually am trying to position clients in ways that they can grow with minimizing the legal problems and. Uh, you know, really watch some clients. Build I've had some clients that have been with me for 10 or 15 years, and, you know, seeing what they've grown into is uh, rewarding. So, uh, yeah, it sounds like, you know, from leaving and taking that sabbatical, you almost did 180 to return from from tearing things down to building things up or helping people, which which um, really was a very big benefit for you. 
Yes, absolutely. Going back to, you know, in the intro, what you were talking about with coaching, you know, and really finding the answer within you, um, you know, that was certainly what happened to me. I mean, it took me going to Siberia to discover it, but, um, <laughs> you know, I learned that that was really kind of the aspect of the practice that, you know, that I would enjoy um, versus, you know, what you see on TV or you have all this, you know, drama and what have you. Um, and it, it turned out to be, you know, a great choice for me. Um, personally, you know, others may have others in the legal profession certainly you know, may enjoy litigation or, you know, other other areas of the law that I would find, you know, horrific. Um, <laughs> but for me, yeah, it, it was definitely kind of a wake-up moment and uh, been happy with it ever since. Great. So if we go all the way back to the beginning, you've been doing this for about 24 years now, maybe a little more than that. Can you talk to us about some of the major changes you've seen in the Internet during that time? from a legal perspective? Sure, sure. Um, you know, when I started looking into the, the field in 2000 and started working with it, uh, the internet at that time was kind of known as the wild, wild west. And the reason for that is there weren't a lot of legal uh, standards required or they were just being uh, enacted. Um, the, the legal process, um, you know, as many people may remember from their childhood watching animated videos on how bills are passed, uh, you know, it goes through the, the legislature, either states or countries, uh, the federal government, and then it goes through a court system basically where different laws are tested and, you know, what's constitutional, what's con- not constitutional. That process takes five to ten years. Um, so even though the Internet was quickly picking up speed, um, there wasn't a lot of definitive law uh, in a lot of areas at that time. And so you had people doing things that now uh, might look questionable, um, but back then, you know, were wide open and became a question of really, you know, how are you going to establish those laws? What are those cases going to be? Um, you know, can you track people online? Can you do this, that, and the other? Uh, and, you know, the U.S. was really leading the way because the Internet was essentially created here. Uh, other countries had no laws at all. I mean, literally just nothing. Uh, I'll give you an example. In Canada, uh, when you think of Canada, most people wouldn't think of Canada as a uh, major base for uh, email spam, but it was for a long time. And spammers would actually move their whole operations to Canada because Canada had no law on email, just none. Yeah. So you could literally spam and do whatever you wanted, and none of it was illegal because there was no law. Um, now, that changed radically a few years ago, but it was just kind of an example of how that process worked. Um, as we moved forward and we started getting into uh, the teens, if you will, um, 2011 on, what we've seen is states, uh, the federal government and countries uh, and the European Union, of course, have really started you know, trying to regulate uh, and pass laws applicable to the Internet that run from everything from hacking to privacy um, you know, to data collection and all these different things. Um, in fact, Google, you know, was just fined $2.7 billion, I believe it was, by the EU um, last week uh, for some of their their search engine practices. And so you're seeing this swing back um, to more government interaction and more laws. And frankly, it's probably going too far, um, much like a pendulum. You know, we'll probably go too far and hopefully then come back to the middle once courts start getting involved in ruling on this. Uh, but Basically, where we are right now is the World Wide Web isn't so worldwide anymore. Um, countries are really practicing, issuing laws and regulations that are territorial, and there's real concern amongst, amongst a bunch of people, not only lawyers, um, but educators and commentators and even the companies that we may end up with a bit of a segmented Internet um, where you may not be able to access certain data in regions or countries. Uh, that you would in other areas just because the laws are so different and the burdens of compliance would be so high. Wow. I never thought about that. Uh, yeah. Kind of it's, 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 it's scary, to be honest with you, because you think about the Internet and you think how used we are to, to gathering information about it. Yeah. And when I talk about that, that subject, most people would think, well, you know, China or something like that. But actually the biggest problem area is the EU. Um, in the United States, online privacy is kind of a joke, to be honest. Um, unless you're a child, the laws that apply to privacy and data collection are, are very weak. Uh, but in the EU, they're considered a fundamental right. And so the Googles and uh, Facebooks of the world that just sweep up huge amounts of data and then monetize it, that's their whole business model. A lot of that runs afoul in the EU. The EU wants you to get affirmative consent from people before you collect information. Um, they have wow. a new... Yeah, in the EU, the privacy regulation is called the General Data Protection Regulation. There's a new version of it going into effect in April 2018, and it's a killer. 
So, for instance, it has Article 8, and that states that um, if you collect information online from somebody under 16, you have to have parental verification first. Uh, that the parents are essentially consenting to you to doing that. Uh, if you think about Facebook or Twitter, well, probably more Facebook or Instagram, how many 15-year-olds do you think are on those sites? I would say And how, how is Facebook or Instagram going to figure out who those people are and how are they going to get verification? <laughs> it, <laughs> it, you know, it's just a mess. Um, so you're seeing that kind of a, a kind of, I wouldn't call it necessarily a backlash, but you're seeing, you know, government stepping in and, passing these these odd kinds of regulations that people are trying to figure out how to deal with. So it's really, really, I would say, affecting the uh, social media outlets, such as the Facebooks or the LinkedIn's or that, because that's, you know, that's kind of their, their way of doing business. So it's kind of really, yep, they have to absolutely. keep their eyes on things. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and it can be lucrative, um, you know, particularly when you look at uh, like an Instagram situation. Uh, I believe Selena Gomez has the most followers on Instagram, and she charges companies somewhere close to $500,000 a post um, to promote their products. And that's across all of her social media platforms, but that's a single post. I mean, I wish. Um, (laughs) And the FTC in the United States has tried to crack down on that. They sent out warning letters. And, you know, what they're, they're saying is that you have to, you have to tell people who are viewing those posts, you know, that you're receiving compensation because obviously that makes a slight difference, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and credibility and what have you. And right now you're seeing a little bit of blowback on that, and, but that's really not even been established. And here we are in 2017, which you would think by now it probably would have been. Um, it's kind of been a, a, you know, the FTC has been saying that for a while, but nobody's really complied. And this is the first time they've ever really acted on it. Um, so the law is kind of all over the place, unfortunately, online. So for people that Definitely. are running any kind of business in particular, you know, it's important to try to at least understand some of these and at least calculate the risk where you're willing to take a risk and where you're not. All right. Well, thank you. Okay, we're, we're approaching our first commercial break, and I want to keep with this conversation. So when we return, Rich and I will continue discussing this legality that's, that's coming up. And also, I want to we're going to start a little bit of conversation about how to protect yourselves online. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a couple minutes. You're listening to Coaching for Real on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Imagine a relationship where you're given the opportunity to think rather than being told what to think. A relationship focused on your potential, not your performance. This is Coaching, an alliance designed to help you achieve your intended outcome. Discovering that what lies behind you and what lies before you are trivial matters compared to what lies within you. Your coach is passionate about helping you discover your masterpiece and live into your greatness at RonaldGraves.com. That's RonaldGraves.com. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. How is your business running? It should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Sergio Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. This is Coaching for Real with Ronald Graves. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also choose to send an email to ronald 
at ronaldgraves.com. Now, back to Coaching for Real. Welcome back. We're talking to internet business lawyer Richard Chapo. But before I bring him back on, I have a special offer for our listeners. I recently relieved my nuggets recently released my Nuggets of Leadership MP3 series, which includes seven downloadable leadership lessons. These lessons are absolutely free to anyone and everyone listening to this show. Simply click on the Nuggets banner at the top of the Coaching for Real show page. You can do anything at the time. Then place your order, and you'll not only receive the Nuggets of Leadership program, but you will also receive a weekly leadership blog based on the best-selling book, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by Dr. John C. Maxwell. Once again, all of this is absolutely free to everyone listening to this program. Now, I want to get back to Richard and, you know, so much new information coming in that first segment. I don't even know where to start almost in the second one. But, but I'm going to ask a couple of questions for Richard. One of them, let's talk about what our listeners can do to protect themselves online. Now, you've broken that down into seven steps. So can you take those steps one at a time and sort of elaborate on those for us? Sure. Um, you know, it, before we do that, let me just state that um, the legal situation online, it can be a little intimidating. Um, don't let it be. Uh, anybody who's listening to this should know that these are really to-do items that you want to address, um, but they really shouldn't be a bar to you moving forward with any idea that you have about launching an online business. Um, it's an incredible medium, the ability to reach so many people uh, so simply. Uh, really can't be overstated. So don't take these issues as things that that should cause you to say, oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't do this business. You should um, just make sure you talk with an attorney in your area who's familiar with these issues, and uh, you know they can take care of it for you, and you should be in good shape. Uh, so the seven items. Uh, the first one is a common one with any business, which is uh, creating a business entity. Um, a business entity is always a smart choice because you want to create a wall essentially between the business assets, the business debts, the business liabilities, uh, and your personal assets. And a corporation or an LLC is going to be the best choice in that, in that regard. Um, the exact answer depends on your state um, because business laws really, uh, well, related to entities are on the state level. They're not federal. So there is no federal law authorizing corporations, for instance. Um, so you need to check with your state, and the answer is different in each state. Um, we also have what many people expect is going to be a revision to the tax code coming up. Uh, regardless of your politics, we do need a revision. The current tax code is such a mess, it's, it's difficult to comply with. Um, mm-hmm. when, when that occurs, you know, we may see that one type of business entity becomes more favorable than another. Again, talk with somebody local that forms businesses, and they should be able to give you a pretty good idea of what's involved in that. Uh, the second step would be getting online insurance, insurance for your online business. And this is important. Most people say, well, if I form a corporation or an LLC, what do I need insurance for? And the insurance creates a pool of money for you to deal with any kind of legal dispute. So um, if you were sued, and you walk into an attorney's office, you say, I was sued. The attorney says, yes, we can defend this. You know, but I'm going to need $10,000 to, you know, start get start working on the case. Um, where are you going to come up with that money? If you have an insurance policy in place, the insurance will pay your defense fees. And that will also pay any settlement or judgment that's necessary if one is. Um, so that's very important. Uh, so make sure you have those, those two items in place. Again, these are just to-do items. They're not, you know, complex legal issues. Um, but you want can to take I interrupt care you for just a second? Absolutely. Now, most business owners or most a lot of consultants have, you know, their their professional liability insurance. But you're saying you need internet insurance. So is that is that a separate insurance that, you know, you would maybe tack on to your policy or have it added on, or is it a separate or a separate insurance policy altogether? You would actually talk to um, your insurance broker. Uh, okay. to find out which the best approach would be. If you have professional insurance, and um, they're starting coming around to the idea that you're probably online, um, and so many of them will include coverage, and you won't need separate coverage. Um, but again, it just depends on where you are, the specific jurisdiction requirements. So for instance, I'm in California. Um, with professional insurance, uh, when you buy it, it doesn't actually protect you from malpractice claims and liability claims. Um, it's just a public policy issue in California, and so a lot of people are okay. are kind of you know stuck with those situations. But let me um, amend that. I have that all backwards. Uh, the policies will cover you, but a, a corporation or an LLC um, will not. In California, you have to form what's called a professional corporation, and it doesn't protect you at all from liability claims. So you want a liability policy that would do that, regardless of whether you're online or off. In other states, the okay. answers might be different. So just talk to your insurance broker. Okay. Thank you. All right, we can go back to number sure. three now. 
the next one is an odd little thing. Uh, it's more of a practical tip than anything. It's called the check the box requirement. If you've ever registered for a form or you've ever made a purchase, you're often required to check a box saying, yes, I agree to the terms and conditions uh, and privacy policy. The reason for that is that's called a click wrap agreement and most courts are going to enforce that. In fact, almost all courts will enforce that. Um, if you just put a link at the bottom of your site that says terms and conditions, uh, most courts will not enforce that. And the reason being that uh, in, if we go back to the beginning of the commercial web in around 2000, most judges had never been on a website, didn't know how to use their email or anything, didn't really understand how people use websites. Well, they do now. And they realize that nobody scrolls down to the bottom of a blog or anything of that sort and clicks that link and reads the terms and conditions. And so they're unwilling to enforce those. Um, so if you're selling something, if you're uh, registering people, you're taking any action where people have to affirmatively give you information or do something, make sure they check a box agreeing to your terms and conditions and privacy policy. Um, the terms and conditions are written in your favor. Um, you should have an attorney draft them, but they, they should be there to benefit you. So, for instance, they'll, they'll include things like a choice of forum clause, which says that if any of the users of your site or your service get into a legal dispute with you, they have to come to where you are to litigate that. Um, so if you're in Florida and the client is in Seattle, um, the client would normally sue you in Seattle. You would have to go there to defend it. So you're going to incur all kinds of costs and what have you. With a choice of form clause in your terms, they have to come to you. And it's not 100% enforceable, probably about 75 to 80% of the time. Uh, the court looks at whether it's fair and equitable. Um, but even huge companies like Google use a choice of form clause to get people to come across the country to actually file lawsuits against them. Um, so just always remember with your terms, although it's a technical legal document and most people you know, probably roll their eyes about it, it is an important document for you. And if you doubt it, just think about any Apple product to use and how often they require you to check a box agreeing to their terms. Um, you know, they're, they're sliding everything in their favor, and you should do the same as a business. Um, the next subject would be copyright, which is the DMCA. Um, the modern trend with websites and apps and what have you is to allow users to get on them and to post information. Um, if you do this, you need to comply with something called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998. And what the act basically says, um, remember, in 1998, the web was an infant when it came to commercial medium. They passed certain laws trying to help uh, foster growth on the internet and try and protect internet companies at that time from getting swallowed up in waves of lawsuits. Uh, and the DMCA was one such law. And what it says is, uh, as long as you follow a very simple compliance process, you cannot be held liable for copyright infringement based on content uploaded by your users. So if you think about Facebook, somebody copies something from a site, posts it on Facebook because they think it's funny or what have you. Um, that site, that's copyright infringement in most cases. And that site, the owner of that site can come to Facebook and say, hey, <laughs> you know, what are you doing? You have this content on there. It's our content. We didn't give uh, consent. And uh, Facebook will take that content down. They'll comply with the DMCA. Uh, it's just a number of simple steps. There's a book on um, Amazon called DMCA Handbook that you can use. It's about 40 bucks. Uh, or you can talk to a lawyer and have them explain it to you. But it's a very simple process. And once that's done, Facebook cannot be sued for monetary damages for that infringement. You can get the same protection. It's, it's the monopoly, um, you know, collect $200 every time you go past a certain certain spot kind of law. It's a great law for businesses. Now, individuals and copyright owners don't like it much, but um, if you're going to have a business and you're going to allow people to post anything to it, comply with that law. It is incredibly uh, beneficial to your business. Um, moving along, do not sell. Okay. Um, if you ever read through a privacy policy of a website, and I realize many people haven't, you'll often see a statement that says, do not sell, we do not sell, rent, or share your personal information. Now, as a business owner, whether you're a coach or uh, running any kind of business online, um, that may be tempting to write because it suggests to your users that you care about them and that you have their best interest in mind. Um, as with no, noble deeds, it can backfire on you. And the problem arises when you go to sell the business. So once, once you're ready to sell a website, what are the most valuable aspects of that site? And in most cases, one of the biggest valuable aspects is the client list or your email list. And what is that comprised of? The personal information of your um, visitors. Well, you've just promised in your privacy policy that you're not going to sell, share, or rent that list, that information. So when you go into a business transaction, one of the most valuable assets of your, of your site cannot be transferred and the buyer is going to be very unhappy. 
Um, this actually has popped up in a number of pretty high-profile cases. One involved True.com, which was a dating site. Uh, their parent company had some problems and ended up in bankruptcy. And once that occurs, all the assets of the company also end up in bankruptcy. So True.com was in bankruptcy. Another dating site came along and tried to buy True.com's client list uh, for $700,000. And uh, a number of attorney generals in different states objected to the sale because True.com had a statement in their privacy policy saying, we do not sell, share, or rent your information. And the court agreed and blocked the sale. Uh, Radio Shack has had this problem recently as well. So... So just be careful about those things. You can include that statement so long as you include a statement right with it that says, however, <laughs> if we sell this site or, or our business, you know, your personal information will be part of that transaction. Um, okay. But it's, you know, there's, as an attorney, I'm not blind to the fact that there's a zillion free privacy policies out on the web and privacy policy generators, all of which are horrible. Um, but people use them because you don't want to spend money, you know, when you're first starting a business, and that's, you know, it's completely understandable. The problem is they'll contain clauses like these that just kill you. Um, so you have to be very careful. I'm sorry? Okay, got it. That's a good point. Um, and then we get to a technical legal issue um, that I'll just cover really briefly because most people are that will just put you to sleep, it will cure insomnia. Um, arbitration agreements. You want to include what's called an arbitration, uh, mandatory arbitration agreement and class action waiver in your terms of service. This is something that your attorney should really do. But basically what, it's, what it does is if you think about internet transactions, most internet transactions um, you know, are for fairly small amounts per transaction. Um, so when people go to sue you, you're really, you know, you're not facing huge debt unless you're dealing with a particular area, um, you know, maybe $10,000 or maximum, something of that sort. The problem where you, where you really run into danger online is if you have a lot of users who all have the same complaint. Then they can file what's called a class action against you, um, and those lawsuits become extremely expensive. Uh, in a 2011 case called ATT Mobility versus Concepcion, the Supreme Court said that um, Federal, the Federal Arbitration Act of 1925 applies to the Internet. And it was a completely new decision, completely, complete 180-degree change in the law. But, you know, the key aspect of that decision was that you can force people to give up their right to class action uh, lawsuit against your business. And so that's something that you want to include in your terms. It's very important um, because that's going to eliminate, you know, the, the worst-case scenario risk that most businesses will face. Um, so you look at a company like Zappos. Zappos is a well-known retailer. They were hacked in 2011, 2012, and you know, huge number of their their users had their information taken, and they were hit with class action lawsuits. If they had had that clause, then um, you know they would have greatly eliminated uh, the damages. Now they would have paid, but they wouldn't have paid millions and millions of dollars in attorneys' fees um, to class action lawyers, which is kind of the primary reason those lawyers get involved. Um, so it's, it's a, it can be a huge benefit for you. Definitely something that you want to undertake. Uh, and then finally, just reoccurring charges. Um, the reoccurring charging model online is a great one. And that's a situation where you have somebody that signs up and they pay you regularly. So, for instance, monthly um, for access to a dating site or something of that sort. Just understand that when you do that, certain states require that you also include disclosures when people sign up. And those disclosures basically explain how people can cancel. Um, because there were problems with sites that were of a more um, questionable content nature that would offer you know free trial for three days, and you would sign up for the free trial, and then it was impossible to find out how you canceled, uh, and they would just oh. keep charging you and charging you. And so those laws are state laws. There are various states that have them, California, a couple of others um, that are out there to limit those. So those you want to keep an eye on. And that, that particular um, issue as well, um, goes across borders, too. Same uh, business not. with people in uh, Europe or in uh, Asia or whatever, on a recurring billing basis. Yeah, it does not at this point, but I would assume okay. that it will in the future. Okay, good. All right, well, we are um, getting close to our last commercial break, so it's a good time to break right now as we come to the end of that seventh step. So uh, when we return, we will uh, continue with our discussion. A few more questions for Richard. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. You're listening to Coaching for Real on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
Imagine a relationship where you're given the opportunity to think rather than being told what to think. A relationship focused on your potential, not your performance. This is coaching, an alliance designed to help you achieve your intended outcome. Discovering that what lies behind you and what lies before you are trivial matters compared to what lies within you. Your coach is passionate about helping you discover your masterpiece and live into your greatness at RonaldGraves.com. That's RonaldGraves.com. Does your organization lack proper leadership? We're not necessarily talking about experience, but about how to face the changing dynamic of leadership today. Sometimes the people we lead know more. Old ways don't work anymore, and the comfort zone just becomes too easy. Listen for Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. We'll show you how you can adapt and develop your leadership skills to today's workplace. Every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. This is Coaching for Real with Ronald Graves. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also choose to send an email to ronald at ronaldgraves.com. Now, back to Coaching for Real. Welcome back. We're talking with Internet Business Lawyer Richard Chapo. Uh, before the break, we uh, went through the seven steps uh, that you can use to protect yourself online. And we got that all seven steps in that, that uh, particular segment. So I'm going to change gears just a little bit. Um, maybe you can clarify some terminology before we get into some of the other issues. Um, is there a, really a difference legally between what we say having an online business and simply just having a website for a consulting or brick-and-mortar type business that doesn't really transact online? Um, there's no technical difference, but, um, for practical reasons, sure. You know, if you're using, um, just a one or two page website online, like essentially a business card, then obviously, you know, most of these legal issues are, are not a concern. Um, what you will find is some states require privacy policies, uh, regardless of the nature of the site. So you, you want to put at least a simple privacy policy up. If you have that type of site, it would be very simple. Uh, and the other thing, just as an odd practical issue, is uh, Google, when it's ranking sites, considers the privacy policy, the presence of one, to be a uh, ranking factor as well as an about page. Um, so you want to add those because you want your, your site to at least appear for your name if somebody was to search for your name personally or your business name. Good. Great. Great information. Now, is there a difference from a legal standpoint between transactions now, some transactions, you actually have to make the payment online. You go online and you pay online and you get the receipt online, et cetera, and then the money is, is exchanged, you know, through the Internet. And then there's sometimes where you actually sell online, but you transact off of that particular uh, that site. Is there a big difference between those two? Um, not a huge difference for the listener. Typically when you're, when you're doing a transaction online where you're collecting money, you're usually going to use a payment processor, mm-hmm. um, PayPal yes. or Stripe or some company of that sort. Um, and there are significant legal issues that you have to deal with. However, those companies will take that burden. Um, so for, uh, if you have a site, um, let's say you have an app or something where you're charging people, 
Uh, it's very rare that the Apple actually take that that information, the payment information. Instead, what they do is they link to a transaction page for the payment processor. Now, it will look like it's a page on the site. The, the user really won't be able to tell it's a payment processor, but it will go through that system, and those people will, will comply with the legal uh, issues that are there. And there are a ton of legal issues regarding transactions uh, online because you get into issues about, you know, are you moving money offshore to terrorists and everything else? They realize that sounds bizarre, but um, <laughs> the nature of the Internet is such that, you know, whether you're paying somebody who's a block away from you or somebody who's on the other side of the, uh, the world, it really is the same transaction from an Internet perspective. Um, but if you use the third-party payment processors, you're not really going to have any issues. And frankly, that's why so many people use the third-party processors. Excellent. Good advice. Can you talk a little bit about the legal issues regarding the download and use of apps? The download and the use of apps? Well, you can yes. you can download and use apps you know, as they're provided. I think for people who are, are providing the apps, who are creating those apps and making them available, um, you know, it's very similar to the website in the sense that you want to have a privacy policy that clearly explains, um, you know, what you're doing in regard to data collection, uh, and you want to have a set of terms that's going to protect you. The areas that you get into a little different, um, you find a little differentiation is with the app, you need to make sure you address who's paying for the charges, which obviously if you're the business owner, you're not. Um, but you also have to address issues related to the data collection that may um, may comprise of data that people aren't really realizing. So, for instance, many apps these days will have maps on them. So Google Maps, for instance, um, you have to disclose whether uh, the user's geolocation is being tracked, um, you know, what kind of information you're collecting, uh, whether the app is collecting information when it's not being used. So the phone is on, but the app isn't being used. In some cases, apps will collect that. They'll collect, um, it's called background uh, information uh, on locations and things of that sort. And then one of the biggest areas that you're seeing um, is a concern with apps is if your app targets children under 13 um, in the United States, because you see a lot of game apps and what have you, you have to comply with the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Um, and that act says that if you target kids that are under 13, you have to get uh, parental consent beforehand, and uh, the fines are up to $40,000 per child that you don't have consent for. Um, unfortunately, the FTC is in charge with enforcing that, and they haven't really done a great job of it. Um, enforcements have been very intermittent, so um, you know, if you get unlucky and you do get hit, uh, it can be very expensive. Um, it's very similar to the European law we discussed before, where it was under 16. In fact, the European regulation is based on the U.S. law. Um, so those are issues that you have to keep in mind. Um, but apps are also kind of a they're kind of a new area in the sense that, from a legal perspective, there's still um, some basic fundamental issues that are being dealt with. The other thing to also be very careful about is the store that you sell the app through, even if you're providing it for free. Um, Apple, I think, uh, terminated 50,000 apps this past November for violating their guidelines. Um, so you really want to make sure that you keep an eye on those, you know, what those guidelines are and how they apply to your app. Interesting. Now, Richard, we're putting our reputation in front of the entire world through our, you know, our websites, our blogs, our tweets, all of our social media interaction. We're, you know, kind of sending this out to the masses in hopes of building a following, but yet we've got really no control over who sees our information, how they react to it, what they'll do with it. How, how can we protect our online reputation if there is such a thing? Yeah, yeah, this is going to be an unpopular answer. Um, it's very difficult. Uh, the problem that you have, um, if somebody goes and they post on Facebook, you know, in a, a group, um, you know, that you target, you know, that you're a horrible person, um, you can contact Facebook and say, hey, you know, take this down. This is damaging my reputation. And under a law called, uh, uh, just escape me, but Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, um, Google or Facebook does not have to take that down, much like the DMCA, where the website itself can't be held liable for uh, the, content, the content or the conduct of people using it. Um, that's kind of how it plays out. So where you see this, for instance, is with Yelp. Um, so you may have a business, and Yelp will obviously have the reviews, and a lot of people will look at Yelp. I mean, it goes a long way to establishing you know, whether you're going to be successful or not online. So if somebody posts a negative review and let's say it's obvious that person's never actually been to your business and you complain to Yelp, Yelp will say, tough, 
<laughs> they won't yeah. take it down. And you really don't have any legal recourse. Uh, the best you can do is try to uh, sue Yelp for the information for the person who posted it. And then you can try to get into that person. You can go after that person. The problem is Yelp is going to raise a First Amendment defense and other defenses saying we're not going to give up this information because it would, um, you know, it would inhibit people's free speech rights. And some courts will agree with that and some won't. Um, you're seeing this section of the law. Section 230 is very bizarre because Communications Decency Act, as you can kind of guess from the name, was really designed to go after online adult material, pornography. Um, and what they will do in these laws is they will often add um, clauses that don't deal with the controversial subject and then try to argue to the court that, you know, this deals with a wide variety of subjects, so it shouldn't be overturned. Um, with this law, it was enacted in 1998. It was immediately challenged, and the Supreme Court immediately invalidated much of the law uh, because it did violate for, uh, freedom of speech. But it left some of the elements in place, which was, it was Section 230. Um, and so we have this bizarre situation where most of the Communications Decency Act was, was terminated, um, but this one section is certainly still valid. And now we're seeing other people try to attack it, um, and there's real questions about what's going to happen to it going forward. Um, you're seeing attacks in the state courts uh, that are trying to get around it, and they've been using a site called Backpage as kind of a sample. Backpage uh, is, is very much like Craigslist, um, but it lists uh, escort sites. Uh, as well as one of the categories, and there have been complaints that it's um, you know prostitution and sex trafficking and things of this sort. And uh, the Washington State Supreme Court um, basically ignored Section 230 and, and found the backstage uh, backpage uh, owners liable for that. Um, so it's it's an up up in the air area right now. Um, but with your reputation, you know it's it's the best way to deal with it. Most likely is um, if you're on Yelp, you know you pay for advertising. Suddenly, shockingly, uh, many of the negative comments will disappear from your page. Um, ironically, a California court has said that is legal practice because Yelp is a private company. Basically, they can do whatever they want with their reviews. Uh, and then the other thing is to um, you know, try to generate as much positive uh, commentary as you can. Either you can use reputation management, repair companies, some are better than others, um, but you're just your customers that you know are happy with you. You know, try to try to make sure that they go online to various places and post positive comments. Good. All right. That's good information. Now, in one of your recent blogs, you stated something that, that just I had never even considered at all. And you said the provisions of the Americans with Disabilities Act apply to commercial websites. Can you? I, I would have never thought that. What, can you elaborate <laughs> on that? <laughs> You're not the only one that never, never, <laughs> I mean, never would have thought that. That was certainly a surprise no. to many of us. It is actually still up in the air. Um, okay. So the Americans with Disabilities Act requires uh, commercial businesses to uh, take into account disabilities and provide, um, you know, for lack of a better word, channels for them to access retail spaces uh, and what have you, you know, wheelchair ramps and, and so on. And the question has always been, not always been, but the question was raised, does that law also apply to the web and to websites? And the answer to most people, uh, from most people, including myself, was no. There's no retail space. You know, there's, it's not a physical space. How could it apply? Um, and attorneys have brought lawsuits over it, and some courts have said exactly that. No, it's not a, it's not a physical space. Other courts have said, yes, it does. Um, and they base it on the idea that the website is just an extension of a brick-and-mortar business somewhere. Um, so we've seen a couple larger groups that have um, basically agreed to settle those cases, and, and they comply. And the question is, what is compliance? Um, you can do a search for what's called an ADA toolkit, uh, and it talks about it. But basically, it's the idea that you're taking your content and creating different versions of it that a person who's disabled may be able to use. So, for instance, um, you know, with videos, you might create PDF transcripts. Um, with, you know, images, you want to include statements on the images that can be read, um, you know, by their, uh, by computer software that will tell them what the image is, you know, all these different things. Um, the area is, is, is very controversial at the moment. And the problem is really, again, kind of the federal government in Washington. Most of the problems with the Internet really come back to Washington and just the political nature and culture there is that they just don't, they don't pass laws on these issues. So the Justice Department has said that they think that the ADA applies to the Internet. 
And they've said, and in fact, we're going to issue regulations. And we are now in year six of waiting for those regulations to be issued. And yeah. they're saying, well, 2018, we're going to do it. And everybody's like, mm-hmm, yeah, well, you said that six or seven times before. Um, so nobody really knows if regulations will be issued, if they're not. Um, there's an informal belief that the Justice Department may have jumped the gun on whether the ADA applies online and has now realized it when they tried to sit down and write regulations, um, because I don't even know where you would start. There's so many different types of websites. There's, you know, how does it apply to Instagram? How does it apply to a dating site? How does it apply to, uh, you know, a site talking about stock charts? I mean, it, it becomes kind of odd when you actually get into the practical application. So we're not there yet. Um, could you be sued? Could a, could a business be sued for ADA violations? Sure. Um, you know, and then it just becomes a litigation brawl to determine whether, you know, that particular court thinks the ADA applies. Uh, and if it does, you know, what are the requirements and what have you. Um, so 2018, maybe we'll find out something about it. Maybe we won't. <laughs> I, you know, this is a situation that cries out for Congress to pass a law specific to the Internet and saying, yes, the ADA applies or no, it doesn't. If they pass a law, they're going to say yes. And then they would issue, you know, specific um, requirements for websites. And in that situation, if you own an online business and you're listening to this, you may be rolling your eyes and thinking, oh my, oh my God, how am I going to spend money to comply with that? The beautiful thing about the internet and with a lot of these legal issues is that people will create tools or little software programs that you can use to address those. Um, so for example, if you think about the check the box requirement we discussed earlier, um, you know, from a legal perspective, you, you want that. From a practical perspective, how do you put it on your website? Well, if you're on WordPress, somebody made a plugin, and you just add it to your, you know, you add the plugin to your website, and you're good to go. If you're not on WordPress, there are free JavaScripts that float around that will do it. So I think if the ADA does become binding on everybody, you're going to see that kind of a thing where there are going to be tools that come out that will help you do it. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah. be hugely concerned about All it. Right. Um, you know, so sit tight. What you're saying, sit tight and watch, because uh, it's nothing to get alarmed at now. So, right. That's good. Well, we're running out of time. It's been an outstanding show, and I really appreciate your being on Coaching for Real. Uh, where can our listeners contact you, learn more about how to protect themselves, get whatever materials you might have for them? Sure. You can always get me at my website, which is SoCal, like Southern California, SoCalInternetLawyer.com. Um, and I'll be happy to give you a free website review uh, or app review uh, if you just mention Ronald's name. And um, you can find me there. You can also find me through the search engines. Uh, my last name is Chapo, C-H-A-P-O, and I am not related to the drug kingpin from Mexico. Um, <laughs> so when you see all the good. listings for DEA and FBI, that is not me. <laughs> good, good. I'm glad to hear that. you much more believable now. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you again for being on the show. Appreciate that. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Well, it's been my sincere pleasure uh, adding value to you tonight through today through Coaching for Real. Um, it's been an outstanding show. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. And we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to Coaching for Real today. Be sure to join Ronald Graves again next Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll talk again very soon.